Coming up on today's show, Chris talks about industrial grade LTE. We have a philosophical debate on cloud versus local. And I experience full blown Americana this Halloween. It involves golf carts. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. And this is Self Hosted. Well, this is an awkward one because it's just after Halloween and just before the election. So there's a lot going on. How are you doing, Alex? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yes. We don't really celebrate Halloween very much in England, but it's a, it's a big deal over here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I actually had my, I think, one of my biggest Halloween wins as a dad, and it just it just came on accidentally while the kids were out doing uh, a Halloween activity. I had the realization in a moment in a moment of clarity where nothing else was going on. I realized that basically 90 percent of the lights in my house are smart lights, and I always have them at just a warm white but I actually could change their colors. And so I went around, well, inside Home Assistant, and changed all the different colors of the lights to Halloween colors and then turned on the Halloween sound effects on the HomePods. Oh, cool. <laughs> and then the kids got home and opened up the door to Lady Jupes, and it was like a, it was like a Halloween uh, uh, festival inside. It, it, was like a, it was like a nice smart home win moment because it was that everybody looked around and went, oh, yeah, right, colors, you can do that. <laughs> How how is it going for you though? I mean, Halloween's one thing, but of course the elections coming up. This there's got to be a lot of new, a lot of America in your face right now. Well, yeah, I think the most American thing I've seen since I emigrated is a family trick or treating on a golf cart. Oh, that's next level. <laughs> that's a good idea. You know, I mean, you don't want to have to wear yourself out getting your candy. <laughs> you don't have to walk. I mean, and even this year, because it was all, you know, Corona, everything was socially distanced. So people just placed the tables at the end of their driveways. And uh, it didn't, the kids didn't, they literally drive along on the golf cart, hop off, take three paces to the, the nearest driveway, load up the bowl of candy, and then off they go again. So it's uh, minimum viable effort trick-or-treating this year. I lurk on a lot of the communities that share their ring footage. <laughs> this is a thing on the internet, by the way. People that share their ring footage. And so many, so many videos this year, a lot of them have made it to Reddit, of full-fledged dudes, like adults, just coming up and wholesale, wholesale stealing candy out of bowls. <laughs> God, I just can't even with these people. People need to do something better with their time, like get certified. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. Are you looking to make a high-paying career move into the cloud? Well, there's no better place to start than getting a certification. ACG has helped more than 2 million people skill up on the cloud. AWS, Azure, and Google exam preps, you're covered. Just get going at a cloudguru.com. I'm so excited. I saw on the road outside my neighborhood last week, the AT&T techs were fiddling around with a ditch witch running fiber up the road. So, oh, I might be getting fiber soon. Oh, I was thinking maybe they were running down infrastructure for the towers for 5G. Oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be. You've got to get that corona in somehow. <laughs> <laughs> right. you got to get it in every town and every neighborhood. Well, I mean, either way, though, you're, you're getting an upgrade, right? So, right. God, fiber would be great. Speaking of backhaul, though, you have been going crazy with this industrial LTE modem setup. Tell me about that. Oh, my gosh. I have achieved LTE nirvana, I suspect. I mean, early days, big, big upgrade for the RV. So super quick recap. For those of you who maybe are new or don't know, uh, I choose to live in a Class A RV, a 40-foot bus, basically. That's what the Class A is. A baked bean tin on wheels. Yeah, carry on. And and it's sometimes loaded up with kids and dogs and tons of podcasting gear. And it has to accommodate working from home and school from home now for three kids. And my wife, who has transitioned some of her practice online, so she's doing video calls. You forgot one important thing that it carries as well. What's that? Your poops. That's true. Lady Jupes carries my poop. So I call my RV Lady Jupiter, named by the audience, uh, live on Linux Unplugged one day, and for short, Lady Jupes. And you, you might not think of this initially, but it's really tricky to have a solid, reliable internet connection in a mobile vehicle, especially if it's not just a car, because there's some booster solutions that are pretty, you just throw an antenna on the roof of your car, they're pretty straightforward. But I needed something that could accommodate a family, that could accommodate work, and that could accommodate multiple cellular scenarios because some areas have better carrier coverage. In fact, it's just how it always works. There's some areas that are stronger with different carriers. 
And through research, I had come across the PepWave Max Transit by a company called PepLink. The Max Transit is a purpose-built modem router unit with two LTE modems, each with two antenna ports. And you can do redundancy. You can do combination here. I'll get into that a little bit with optional speeds on the modems. So to, to, to really learn all this, Alex, it was actually really kind of fun because I had to learn a lot about LTE and LTE modems that I, I never knew before. And I didn't, I didn't know or appreciate that there were multiple categories of LTE modems and each category is sort of translatable to a expected best case scenario speed. Well, I know there's lots of different bands available, like different frequencies effectively is what that means. Right. There's that as well. And, and oh, that's different. Yes. And also very important. Um, (laughs) It's so crazy, Alex, because (laughs) like you have networks like AT&T and they have this super hodgepodge network where they have got different bands in different areas and it's very uncommon. And then you have a carrier like Verizon, who in comparison has a a much more kind of streamlined network, a a more maybe custom or um, intentionally built network. But no, the the category of the modem... um, to really kind of just make it just super uh, uh, approachable, think of the category of a modem like um, how many antennas it has. And each category you go up, you get more antennas. And antennas, you could think of those as as listening ears and sending ear and mouths to the to the tower. And the more antennas you have, the faster that your connection is. And it'll be you know it could be really common for a cell phone to have two or or even like four antennas, like in the iPhone 12 now. And in certain scenarios, you can utilize all those antennas at once. And each one of them could be, you know, potentially 20, 30 megabits. So uh, I needed something that was pretty high end. I had to find that sweet spot between ridiculous money, because this is something you could just, you could spend ridiculous money on, and something that was performant enough that I could actually notice a difference when I went through all this hassle. And so I ended up with something that's called a Category 12 modem. And that has somewhere around a maximum transfer transfer speed on LTE of around 603 megabits, potentially, if your LTE network could uh, handle that. So you could go as far up as, as a, a gigabit with some of these modems, but the cost just exponentially grows. So I went right there in the middle. Some systems have what's called a Category 4. Some have all these different categories. At the end of the day, you have to kind of pick and choose. And when you start getting into this, you have to start learning what these terms mean. So I wrapped my head around all of that, and I got myself a dual Cat 12 modem. So I have two cellular LTE modems, each of which are capable of around 600 megabits, given the proper LTE connectivity. So do those things support GSM and CDMA? GSM and CDMA are a different set of technologies. This is all LTE. And then within LTE, like you touched on earlier, there's a ton of different bands that you could get that have their various pros and cons. That's interesting because I, when I unboxed my OnePlus 8T last week, I put my Verizon SIM into it and it said, this device is CDMA-less. And I'm like, uh-oh. And then it just activated just fine. So does that mean that CDMA is not really a thing anymore? Right. Yeah. Verizon was the bigger CDMA carrier and they've transitioned to LTE. Fascinating. And and of course, 5G is just around the corner, right? So there's also that math. I had to look at getting a technology that was sufficiently performant, but was sort of established and reliable enough that I felt comfortable putting it in my RV. I, tr- I, I sort of treat the RV like a boat and I don't always go for the absolute crazy latest and greatest. Like when I put my lithium and solar system in, I got a I got a really nice system, but there are crazier, newer, higher tech systems that are coming out now. But I kind of I kind of got I go for one generation back that's gotten really good, gotten a lot of market adoption, and really worked out a lot of the bugs. And then I put that into the RV, and that's what these transits are. These this pep wave is built for public use on transit on a bus in a plane where you have maybe even up to 100 people using Wi-Fi off of this thing and then using its LTE connection. And it is this particular line, the max line for these transit devices, are ruggedized for harsh environments. They're built to be going down the road bumping. 
and they're built to be powered directly off of DC or AC if you need. And so they're, they're like for a home use, they're just up to the line of overkill without actually being overkill for my particular use case. So I'm just looking at this picture you have in the show notes of of the device itself, and there are lots of antenna holes and serial and console and power inputs and Ethernet jacks and all the rest of it. So, you know, what do you need to put on the outside of your bus and stuff like that? So you can hook up antennas directly to the ports that it comes with, and you're going to get something that's way faster than any MiFi. You're going to get something that's screaming fast, and that's how I use it right now. But in about two weeks, I'm going to get this seven-in-one antenna installed on the roof. I'm going to have to drill a hole, which I'm very nervous about, through my roof. And that will bring in external antenna and into this guy. And I'll take off the little uh, antenna that I have installed on it, and I will hook up the wires from the external antenna. That'll give me even more performance because it's outside the metal box. It has multiple antennas in it. And it'll probably give me about a 5 dB gain in cellular signal, which is huge. That's a, that's a massive gain. So your before speeds were what, and what are you hoping to get with this new antenna? So right now, with the current setup that I have where I'm just using the built-in antennas, I'm getting, you know, somewhere between real world, it depends on the carrier, but 60 to 90 megabits, which is pretty great. That's good. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that. It's enough where uh, you combine it with some of the other features this thing has, and it's 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 really it's really freaking cool. Let me tell you about the really freaking cool stuff. So, I guess one other one other disclaimer is you got to pay for the LTE, right? So I have an unlimited AT and T SIM in this thing, and I have an unlimited Verizon SIM in this thing, and then I have a Google Fi data only SIM, which are awesome by the way. If you're a Google Fi customer, you just get a data SIM and just pay for its usage. I have that as a failover device. Oh. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Catherine has a Pixel with Fi. I need a SIM card for my iPad. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. You got to be a current Fi customer to get it. Yeah, well, she is. Uh-huh. I'm going to do that. Thank you for that tip. It's pretty great. So the uh, the Peplink itself runs uh, their own OS. They put a super nice processor in this. It's very fast. I have no complaints about performance, which is not a high, not an easy bar for me. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, sensitive to like slow loading admin pages and whatnot. But one of the things that pushed me over the link on going with this setup versus what I had before, which originally was a travel slate router, and then I kind of replaced that with a Raspberry Pi 4 that was doing kind of a bonded VPN, sort of, which worked. But I needed something that was 100%, you know, something that uh, I could rely to run a security system, something that if I'm not home and my kids are home and they're, they're, they're doing school, uh, I don't have to get a frantic call from my wife saying the internet's gone down again, and I walk her through rebooting a MiFi. I, I I wanted it rock solid, and one of the things that they build into this, you have to pay for it, but it's what they call speed fusion technology, and it is a bonding VPN that very very cleverly bonds your two LTE connections, and it's aware of the data going over both, and it's aware of the individual performance characteristics of each connection, and it will intelligently balance and bond these two connections into one. So how does that work with stuff like cookies and things like that? Because I've often run into this issue, well, this this used to be something I did when I was back in college. We used to flash a couple of cable modems with a spoofed MAC address, and uh, <laughs> yeah. we used PFSense with multi-WANs. And, and that caused loads of issues when it did a round-robin balance between different connections, different WAN connections. Does this kind of have like a sticky feature? Well, the way it is really working is what it's doing is their own custom sauce VPN. And so your endpoint is what all of the client websites and services see as your IP. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, I like that. The downside is you have to either pay them to uh, to host it, which they, they offer multiple servers across various VPS providers that they've abstracted throughout everywhere. There's also other companies that are that are now around that just offer VPN endpoints for these routers because they're pretty common in industrial use. And so there's a good amount of enterprise customers out there that are willing to pay $200 a month for something like this, which is mind-boggling to me because it's really just a VPN. And you've got these people that are charging $150 to $200 a month for the service. They do allow you, and they have different licensing options, some are more affordable than others, to just self-host as well. 
That's very cool. What's the VPN tech they're using? Is it WireGuard or OpenVPN? Or I wonder if it's OpenVPN. I haven't dug super deep into it. I did grab their self-hosted VM image, and I am in the process of testing that. So I may be able to figure that out. Uh, I don't know if I will. They layer a lot of their own like signaling tech on top of it. So whatever it is, it's unique in that sense. Like, for example, they have um, this technology that they call WAN smoothing, which duplicates packets, which sounds like it would take bandwidth, but stick with me for a second. And they call this forward error correction. It sends additional reserve packets, which can be used to mitigate the effects of packet loss via interpolation. The actual practical use case of that is your video calls are rock solid over LTE. And so I'm doing I'm doing video calls. I'm 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 using this connection uh, for I went off into the woods and there's a spot that is on a farm that is, you know, at least 100 acres. And I don't know what it is about this spot. Well, actually, I do know is on the hill above. I actually saw it this trip. This is the third time I've been there and I finally found the cell tower. And it's just, it's a beautiful line of sight cell tower to the camping spot. And I get 90 megabits on LTE. And it's just, it, when you have a device that can handle very high performance LTE and it can handle 30, 40 Wi-Fi clients, which is what I actually have, and it can, it can manage all of this intelligently and it can determine, well, if, you, if you've sent something to Verizon and you're waiting for it to come back, I'll, I'll use the AT&T line. Like it figures all of that out for you. It's really nice. Man, I need I think I need that in my house. I mean, Spectrum is just rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> so I put a link in the show notes. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't it wasn't amazing. I could still I could still see some compression, but I played Red Dead Redemption over Stadia in the woods on an LTE <laughs> connection. Wow. You are living in the future. That's fantastic. It was really good. I mean, there's some latency issues time. And every now and then I got a message from Stadia saying, your connection's not that great. But, it, you know, it works pretty solid. I don't think you were probably their target market when they when they invented Stadia. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, the other thing that's just absolutely been brilliant, and the, and it was one of those wife factors, you know, I do this change. And she's like, yeah, it, it seems faster, right? But you're like, oh, my God. Like I put all this, I put all this time into research and spent a fair chunk of change on this thing and did all of this work to get it installed. You know, I had to switch over our DNS. I had to switch up our DHCP. I had to take out devices, you know, replace my SSID. Like I really, you know, put a lot into this thing. And, and her first response was, it's kind of faster until we sat down and watched YouTube. And you have to understand how this works to fully appreciate this on AT&T. YouTube gets slammed to 480p. It it basically puts up a wall and the client, the YouTube client, just smacks his head into that wall until it finally settles on 480p and then it streams you mud, essentially. And it's it's annoying because you just sit there and the YouTube video player just spins while it has this confrontation with AT&T and then you get your crappy result. It's one of the reasons I love YouTube DL because I just download the stuff and watch it offline. Loved YouTube DL with all this hoopla going on. I, I have faith. I have faith. Yeah, me too. But I'll tell you what, when you're going over the bonded VPN, AT&T has no idea what you're doing and YouTube doesn't care. And so the video starts immediately and it's full 1080p, beautiful, crispy, just boom. And so the wife and I were sitting there on the couch and we pull up YouTube to watch some of the creators that we follow and we hit play on that video and she goes, whoa. It's like we got a brand new TV. The picture quality just skyrocketed and that she noticed. And that, you know, when you're doing that once or twice a week, three times a week, whatever you're doing, like that kind of thing, it's like a quality of life improvement that she noticed and and and, and then it kind of built on that. And then she started noticing other things and now she loves it. And the very clever thing that this this thing does, Alex, is it sets the bonded VPN on its own SSID. So you get a new wireless access point on your LAN. And you join that, and the, everything's the same. You're on the same LAN, same IP space, same DHCP server, same DNS, except for your default route. I'm not sure how they handle DNS in this case, but your default route gets set to the bonded VPN. So you, get, you, have, these, you have this new AP, and you can put certain hosts on that AP and they go out the bonded VPN, and everybody else just goes out the balanced connection which, that just automatically balances. So you just put the televisions 
on the bonded VPN, and boom, streaming is just magic now. Buttery smooth. It's so great. It's 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 it reminds me a lot like when we did the solar and lithium battery upgrade last year, and it just changed everything because now all of a sudden we always had power and all of our outlets, we went from having three outlets that worked when we were on battery and having two lead acid batteries and then two lithium batteries. Now we went to six, 600 amp hours of lithium and solar and it just changed everything. It, we, you know, we could leave our smart lights on, the automations and home assistant could be completely changed. It was a massive quality of life upgrade. And it feels similar to that. It's just another huge improvement. And for the kids, it just means everything works. Just like all the outlets work and we always can turn lights on and all of that. And we can we can leave a TV going if we want. Now, the Internet just works. Because if AT&T is having problems, it just switches to Verizon. If Verizon's having problems, it switches to Google Fi. And it just sorts it all out without me ever having to touch it. You have such a wonderfully unique set of problems to solve in an RV, don't you? <laughs> what about Starlink, though? Isn't that going to change the game in a year or two? I hope. You know, I, I really, I hope it's maybe in a year. I don't know. We'll see. I imagine the last thing they're going to support is RVs. Because right now, if you're a Starlink beta customer, in the EULA, it, it says that you have to use the Starlink service where you signed up. And I don't know if they're doing like, geo-checking or not you know maybe they, they, they sure could be and so in there it says you use it where you signed up and i think i don't know maybe it's maybe they don't have the tech right on repositioning the satellite when you move or something like that and the other thing to think about starlink is it it won't be usable while, while you're going down the road mm. or if there's a lot of tree coverage so i think this will still fill those gaps in even once starlink arrives have you ever gone outside and watched the starlink train of satellites go over it's pretty cool I have never seen it. Every time I look on uh, night sky on my phone, it's always underneath me. <laughs> it's awesome. I'll tell you what, we went out uh, a few weeks ago and, and every, you know, 10 seconds or so, there's another satellite goes over and they're just all in a long line. And it it's just, it's amazing. And you think to yourself, well, okay, now I've, I've got visibility of that satellite for maybe a minute as it goes over. And then you know that they, they've got like some kind of mesh network between them. In communicating so they're they're doing some kind of like zero handoff type style thing between the satellites it's oh it's very cool crazy cool they're doing a lot of beta testing here in washington state so i've been getting little bits of information and you know people are seeing decent speeds 20 millisecond ping time which is doable and 100 megabits on a on a good night mm. of unlimited data yeah my 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 worry really is that you know satellite is very very easily disrupted by weather or trees or something like that you know so yeah a cable is always going to be better but you know it could open up possibilities for new economies of of people moving to rural montana and stuff and and working you know for a facebook or a, an apple or a google or whoever or a red hat oh it's my dream it's my dream <laughs> yeah man me too like i mean I, I live in raleigh right now but you know there's no reason Besides the, you know, social things that you can do here, like you can go to the cinema and, well, not at the moment. But anyway, you get the idea, right? That there is reasons we live in cities, but there are also reasons to kind of think about that fully remote off-grid style lifestyle. But there's also that kind of middle ground of I'm going to live within half an hour's drive of a town and then, you know, have a few acres to myself. And, you know, I think oh, I would love that. I would love that. I just spent Thursday through Sunday off grid. You know, it's funny because when we started this show, I the, the RV was just not off grid capable, right? And you remember, I launched Project Off Grid, and yeah, and now I'm living it. We went off into the woods, and it is it's about 45 minutes from town. It is very remote. It's you don't see another soul. It's a giant forest you can walk around in. And there's, you know, there's wildlife, there's bears, and there's there's things like that to be aware of. But when I'm out there, it this this time, it made me realize I think I could pull this off on an ongoing basis. Like I think I could buy a chunk of land that didn't have utilities and I could live there. I would probably build a little shed with solar and some additional supplemental batteries, so maybe I could double my battery capacity while I was there. 
and I might need an extra large propane tank for the winter. But outside of that, I, I have as long as I have cell signal now. Yeah. And it's reasonable to get into town or Starlink, right? It's it's getting really close. It's it's happening. I saw a, an article. I I don't know what website it was on. Maybe New York Times or something, where Bozeman, Montana, is seeing you know sixteen percent year over year uh, real estate price growth. Yeah, I was in Bozeman just a few months ago, and I go every year. I I, I went twice this year, and it, it is just even during Corona. With lockdowns, it has it has changed every year significantly, and it's going through major growth. I talked to a real estate agent at a pizza place of all of all things. I'm sitting there eating pizza, and I'm talking to a a bin, uh, owner of a business uh, at the pizza place, and I'm talking to the real estate agent. And he said the thing he said is that people are getting these places, and they're just kind of doing the off grid lifestyle, and they're they're doing exactly what you're talking about. And it, you know, I I'm I'm thinking you know it could happen. I mean, a year ago, I I was just figuring out how to even use solar. And now I just basically spent nearly a week off grid loving it. So it just has to have connectivity. But with Starlink, it changes it. And I really debated, should I build this towards 5G? Because that's an example of a, t- a decision where I could have gone a little more cutting edge here. And because you could build a 5G system that's still fully LTE capable. But this speaks to what you said a few minutes ago of, you know, you're using the the, the version of the tech that is you know, not the latest and greatest that's got all the bugs worked out. And that's what LTE is right now. Yeah. And it's, and there's that, it's got the most durable gear, the stuff that's built to go into industrial grade operations. The reality is if I could start getting ideal LTE connectivity, if I can start getting a hundred megabits on LTE, you know, and the system's capable of dual 600, but if I can get even a hundred megabits, that's plenty really. It's just the cost of those plans, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And and maybe that changes as time goes on. You know, you go down the road five years from now when LTE will still be around, but the majority is now everyone's on 5G just because that's what all the phones have that are in operation. Maybe they maybe they stop being such jerks about data usage on LTE. Maybe they don't really care. That's what happened with the Edge network for years. Like Edge went on for a decade and they just started letting people have full access to the Edge network. And you started seeing all these little devices, little tracker devices and whatnot show up that used Edge with unlimited data. And maybe that could happen. And then, you know, be a perfect, you know, three, four or five years from now, be a perfect time to upgrade the system. Time for some feedback, do you think? Yeah, it's been a little bit. And now that we're in our early 30s, we got to start paying attention to these kinds of things, Alex. Early 30s, sure. Wink, wink. Squirrely wrote in. He says, uh, this is on Discord, by the way. I have six eight terabyte drives at the moment, but I just picked up two 12 terabyte drives on sale. Nice. What are some options for how to incorporate these new drives into my environment? I have the eight terabyte drives protected via a single snap rate parity set up right now. But I'm curious as to whether this is still the best route in 2020. The vast majority of my stuff on my NAS is replaceable via media. So I I was thinking about putting the truly important stuff on a mirror or something that will also get backed up with something like Backblaze. What are your thoughts, gentlemen? Interesting question. Yeah, so we we, we had this discussion a little bit on on Discord, but I thought it was going to be useful to relay this to the, the, the audience as well. And there's a few different routes you can go. So you're already using SnapRaid. And the process of adding new disks to SnapRaid is is quite straightforward until you start to uh, mess around with drive sizes like you have here. You know, you had six, eight terabyte drives and now you've changed uh, and added a couple of 12 terabyte drives. One of the requirements of SnapRaid is that your parity disk has to be as large or larger than your largest data disk. So currently your parity drive is an eight terabyte drive you're going to have to swap that out to be one of these new 12 terabyte drives. So uh, what that means is that you're effectively giving up a little bit of space to parity in the short term. But as you expand and, and buy more 12 terabyte disks over the next year or two, uh, you'll be able to add those into the SnapRaid array, for want of a better word. And uh, that should just work just fine. Um, so that's an important consideration. But the last part of your question is, is about should I put stuff on a mirror or, or have something backed up with, with Backblaze? What's important to remember is that RAID or SnapRaid or any kind of parity system, whether it's ZFS or, or whatever, 
is no replacement for a real backup. RAID is not backup. We've 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 pushed this mantra for years as a community, and I just want to implore you to you know remember that parity is not RAID is not a backup. So having an offsite is is absolutely something I would suggest. You know you could do the the G Suite hack, although there was some news about that is changing. Um, the terms of service with G Suite stuff is changing, so. Uh, we'll dig into that more in a future episode. But, um, you know, Backblaze do offer some really competitive prices for backups. So that's a really good option as well. There's there's loads of other backup services as well. But uh, make sure you have an off-site backup um, would, would be a recommendation of mine. Uh, then, then the other option that you've got is to do what I do, which is I have a, a kind of a JBOD array of disks with MergerFS, which are all of, you know, 8 to 10 terabytes in size and then i have a pair of drives which are zfs which are mirrored and then i combine that mirror into the merger fs pool uh, of, of drives using a a specific mount point and there's a blog post i've written on this which is in the show notes uh, and so essentially what it allows me to do is keep my photos and my drone footage and the stuff that i can't reacquire that stuff stays on zfs and is you know using uh sanoid I, I mirror that to my parents houses uh stuff like that and it gives me huge peace of mind as i said a couple of episodes ago when i woke up and my zfs array was blank uh i was just like oh this is annoying rather than uh i've actually lost data so that's an important thing to consider as well but when you're looking at the number of drives you have you know you've got six eights and two twelves if you were to do a zfs mirror with the two twelves that you have if you do the maths behind it, you're actually going to keep the same amount of available usable space by doing it that way. So my suggestion, certainly to start with, would probably be do a mirror of ZFS, free up some space on the uh, the eight terabytes by moving some stuff off of that onto a new mirror that you've created, and then you know uh, add drives as you see fit to the SnapRaid side of things. For my perishable data. It's, it's like inconvenient to lose, but not going to wreck my life. I accomplish this through ButterFS. For better or worse, I find ButterFS to be a great way to manage this. And you can just add mixed sized volumes to an existing mount point. You just plug it in and you add the volume. It's a really simple, straightforward process. But there's no redundancy there unless you do underlying RAID. Tasty too. Yes, very much so. So let's talk about a Zigbee future because Chris L. wrote in about something that's been on my mind. He's been listening from the start, he says, and it's, rich in all sorts of fabulous ideas, but ones uh, that you've actually worked out, not just ones that you're uh, theorizing about. To some degree, there's a little bit of both, I'd say. <laughs> he said, I wanted to comment about episode 24, uh, Open Makes Sense. There are some discussion in there about Z-Wave. I think Chris commented that Z-Wave is used less and less as embedded devices have switched more to Wi-Fi. Uh, while this may be true, I thought I would share comments from a man who fitted the smart meter last month at my house. <laughs> which is currently being rolled out across the UK. He goes on to say the different meters like gas and electric and the monitoring station all talk to each other on Zigbee, the open standard cousin of Z-Wave. And the central point he made is that the SIM card sends the data over a mobile network to the energy supplier. The main point being the Z-Mesh technologies are not being used less, but more as these meters are battery-powered and expected to survive in service for a long time. Thanks for everything. Looking forward to the next show. Also, he didn't mention this, but uh, the new round Amazon Echo, I think, has Zigbee built into it as well. Is that part of being a, a central like home automation hub type thing? Yeah, so it can control the Zigbee devices. I agree, and I have Zigbee abilities on my home assistant uh, I even got a little Zigbee to MQTT adapter, which is pretty rad. However, in actual practical production, I found Z-Wave to work better. And you guys know me. I'm always going to go with the open standard first. That's why I, I went the Zigbee to MQTT route first. But having several devices, I have found Z-Wave to be ironclad, rock solid. Like I can have devices that have been missing from the network for three or four months come back online and it sorts itself out and rebuilds the mesh network and everything's just working. I love it. And uh, I, I, I would love to see Zigbee be just as good and reliable and maybe as more vendors get serious about it and start to use it, that just happens over time. I don't currently have anything on the Z-Wave or Zigbee trains besides my Hue lights, I don't think. 
right? Yeah, they use Zigbee, don't they, on the back end? There's a few things like that that are consumer, quote-unquote, products, but are actually just using Zigbee. The other notable uh, new addition to the uh, smart home communications world is Thread, which the new HomePod minis support, and Eero Wi-Fi access points support, and Thread is another industry standard, open, low-power communications technology that has been around for a while, just like Zigbee has, but more and more recently seems to be getting adoption by the mainstream vendors. It's a it's a weird world out there. So there may be more to come in low-power communications outside of just Bluetooth. Good. Just what we need. Another standard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Michael wrote in and asked us to explain our view on local versus cloud. He says, you focus on privacy and self-hosting, but you also seem comfortable with Alexa, Google, and the Ring doorbell. Can you take a moment to explain the balance on a future show? Interesting question, and we could get quite philosophical here if we were not careful. Uh, I, generally speaking, try to self-host first these days. Uh, Obviously, being a host of the show, that's clearly now a part of the job description. But when I'm talking with family members uh, and people, you know, at work or, you know, just actually generally people on the internet, I don't always suggest self-hosting because... It comes with the overhead of you are the admin. Like when it goes down, as we've talked about in the last few episodes, when there's a problem, you're the one that's got to fix it. And sometimes that can be jolly inconvenient. So you've got to really weigh up the the trade-off that you're going to make of your time and money and convenience and privacy. You've got to trade all those things off against each other for the particular use case that you're talking about. And, you know, lighting is quite low risk, but quite rewarding to automate. But the doors on your house, for example, uh, you know, if you screw up the automations there and you get locked out or locked in, let's say, could be even worse. Um, you know, th- there are different situations where the the cost of s- stuff going wrong is is higher. So, you know, when you look at the privacy angle, you are a, just a single data point in a sea of noise to Amazon and Google. So, you know, you could argue that actually it doesn't matter if you are, you know, saying to your Google Homes, this, that, and the other, or your Alexas, this, that, and the other. You could argue that nobody's listening because you are one of X number of million people doing this. But at the same time, there is a microphone always listening in your house and you don't know, they they say what they're going to use it for. We don't know necessarily what is going to be used for. So there is that to consider as well. I mean, there isn't one right answer to this question. It's it's you have to evaluate your own risk profile for these sorts of things and figure out what works for you and your beliefs and values. Yeah, it's like so many things in life. It comes down to getting the balance right. And that balance is different for each people. It's like dieting. It's just different people. Uh, a balance of intake and exercise is generally that you got to get that just right. Yeah, pizza a day keeps the doctor away, right? That's the saying. Right. Right. And I think it's the same for not just cloud services, but privacy and security in general. So there's some areas where for me, it's just it's a no brainer. I always run a local DNS server. The benefits of that is literally everything I do on the Internet just is just that tiny bit faster. And it feels private. And it's something I know how to do intrinsically now. It's I know the ins and outs of it and I can get it going in 15 minutes. So obvious one. I have not hosted my own email in a decade. It is just something that I feel like the risk profile is higher, the attack surface is high, and then the pain in the arseness is extreme because of spam blacklisting and all of that crap that you end up having to deal with. And so that is something where I've made a judgment call to outsource. Same with cloud backup. I think it's good to have your own backup regime that's local that you can have immediate access to. But it makes sense to also leverage cheap cloud storage that's offsite that protects you from natural disaster, etc. There is an obvious kind of balance to be had there. And I kind of look at all of these things. Um, let's to address like the ring one, for example. I think this is one where we kind of we kind of get lost in the story a little bit. And we hear stories about cops doing subpoenas and getting, you know, a blocks uh, door camera footage and um, you know, that being bad and privacy invasive. 
So the reality is, is that somewhere in the middle, there is a process when you have a ring doorbell where they can request access to your footage. You can deny or approve it via the app. You can determine if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, and there's the privacy aspect of a third party hosting those videos as well. And you can determine if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And I think it all just kind of depends on your sense of the company, their risk profile and all of that. And that's, you know, an always moving target as well. So if I think if you choose to host, like, say, a doorbell or something with a company like Ring, you have to continually assess the risk. It's not something you can just look at once and continually assess. So it's, there's downsides to it as well beyond just the, the privacy aspects of it. There's that overhead of always needing to be cognizant of what's going on and reassessing. But the the uh, the balance for me, I, I tend to be a little more practical. I tend to be a pragmatist when I look at these things. And I, I don't get overly concerned about the, the privacy story around some of these things like, like others do. But that's just different for each of us. The other thing as well is that companies change, like Chris says, you know, look at Nest with their worked with Nest API situation and then you end up with nine months, nearly a year where there is no API whilst Google figures out what they're doing with Nest and, you know, companies get bought and acquired and closed down and change priorities and focus all the time. And, you know, you've just got to bear in mind that if you buy a product now that is subsidized with a cloud subscription or something like that, there is no incentive for that company unless you're paying them money every month to keep offering that service. And sometimes even if you are paying them, it's not enough to be sustainable. So well said. The only constant with your self-hosted home is going to be that things are going to change. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like you said earlier, it's always preferable if I can, if it's something that my business relies on or something that is really critical to me, something I'm really you know concerned about the privacy, like my internal cameras to my RV are completely disconnected from the cloud. Um, I, I think that's where self-hosting can play a really significant role, especially for businesses. I think that's something businesses should think a lot about. Yeah, there's no reason the internet needs to see Chris walking around in his robe, is there? No, no, <laughs> no, there's not. And you know, the other thing, too, is the other line I sometimes consider is, would I deploy this if it wasn't all like a cloud-provided service? If you know they didn't take care of all of the implementation details, would I ever get around to doing this? And that's something I consider as well. So following up on a previous episode where I talked about the new Chromecast with Google TV, uh, they've released an Ethernet adapter, which turns out is a bag of crap. Oh, really? Because it looks so slick. Yeah. Well, I was watching a, a YouTube video yesterday, so I, I haven't personally tested it out. It's just based on a, a YouTube video. But the Ethernet speeds are capped at 100 meg. Stop it. Not even gigabit. Yep, apparently so. Oh, I'm looking at the specs. You're right. You're right. Now, in reality, is that going to be an issue? It's 2020. Why are we putting up with a device that isn't gigabit? It, it probably saves Google a few pennies from using a gigabit adapter instead of a, a megabit adapter. What they've done here that's super neat, though, is it looks just like a standard tiny white USB-C power adapter. But on the side of it, it has an Ethernet port. So you plug the Ethernet into the power adapter, and then that all comes back up one USB-C cable to the Chromecast. I also saw a guy doing like a USB-C hub, and it had a power delivery. Because the um, the Chromecast needs 7.5 watts, you have to have a, a power delivery uh, supportable hub to you know put that much juice through it. And uh, the gigabit speeds were not it wasn't capable of gigabit either. So I don't know if there's some performance limitation on the USB bus inside the Chromecast because he was getting about 300 megabits from his Wi-Fi uh, connection, you know, using AC Wi-Fi. But then he used Ethernet through USB-C, not even the, the actual official Chromecast adapter. And he was only getting something like 180 to 200 meg. So it was actually slower in both cases being wired, which is just wrong. It just dawned on me. That we just assume it's USB 3 because it's a USB-C connector in there. But maybe they saved money and put USB 2 in the thing. <laughs> That's got to be it, hasn't it? That's got to be the answer. It could be. It could be. Oh, Google. Well, let me ask you this, though. Seriously, is a 100 megabit wired connection not still better, though, than Wi-Fi for what you're doing with this thing? Uh, I guess it depends. I mean, Google have engineered this thing to be on Wi-Fi. 99% of customers will use it on Wi-Fi, haven't they? So. True. I don't know. I've not noticed any 
performance difference between my wired shield and my Wi-Fi Chromecast. It's right. It's like if you're not going to get gigabit, then might as well just keep using N. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Bart writes in with a potential pick replacement for you too. So this is our last email, and it also is going to be a bit of a pick. He says, "Hello, friends. Thanks for the show. It helps me get a great deal of home automation ideas for my home." I've been looking for Chromecast alternatives, though, and lo and behold, quite recently, someone came up with this beauty. It's called NymphCast. Seemed right up the self-hosted crowd alley. I, for one, certainly am going to build it and take it for a spin with my Pi Zeros I have in a drawer somewhere. So this thing is essentially a build-it-yourself using Raspberry Pi Zeros, stream audio and video anywhere around your house using any Linux system. Kind of like a universal DIY Chromecast. That is super cool. Uh, I I think we've needed something like this for quite a long time. Yeah, I like this because it's not just something that's like figuring out the Chromecast protocols and using that, but this is a full-fledged open replacement, and it seems surprisingly well thought out and further along than I would think. Uh, it's, it's really in-depth. It's in alpha stage right now, but you can download the server binaries from GitHub. Yeah, and there's Alpine Linux images too, so I could see this being really easy to container up if it isn't already and just have the server running as a container on your on your media box. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes at selfhosted.show slash 31. As always, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact to get in touch with us. And I want to say thank you to our self-hosted site reliability engineers who keep this show online and going. Yeah, big thank you guys. Thank you very much. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter at IronicBadger. And I'm there at Chris LAS, and the show is at Self Hosted Show. Thanks very much for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 31. This is, I admit, a very first world problem. But I think I just, I think I fixate on these things when I have a hundred other problems, but I need something that's not work for my brain to problem solve. And I've been thinking a lot, brace yourself, this is going to sound stupid. I've been thinking a lot about the new iPhones. I have this. I don't know how else to put it, but like this dad guilt about knowing that I could have a better camera phone in my pocket and not getting like the best camera phone possible. And I, this has been a problem for me for a while. And it's one of the reasons I subscribed to just getting the upgrade. So I didn't have to think about this anymore. But this year, it's really been there's a lot of choices. And I've been feeling like like a bad dad if I don't buy a really nice camera every year because my kids are at a great age. It's like seven to 11 and I have three of them and it, and they just, everything's just so, so cha- everything's changing. I want to capture as much as possible and I'm tempted to get a phone with a worse camera and I feel like such a jerk. But aren't the iPhones this year just iterative? They're basically the same sensors or something, right? They all have seemingly better optics, not substantially better optics, but they all seem to have better picture quality and then the Pro Max has a newer, larger, suspended, like in whatever, sensor that seems like it could potentially be really pretty good. So we're, we're at the, the point of diminishing returns with the camera systems now as well, not just the phones themselves. Yeah, to a degree, I think so. There's still improvements to be had, but I, a lot of it's computationally now. Yeah, it's all software. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the new Pixel 5, for example, they've they've dropped the neural core, I think is what they call it. And, uh, you know, Marquez Brownlee and all, and all those, you know, YouTube clan that do the reviews for these things, they are doing speed tests of snapping a picture with the Pixel 3 and the Pixel 5, and it's actually slower on the 5 because it doesn't have this dedicated neural core to do the image processing, which I thought was interesting. Oh, no. No, not slower. Jeez. So, I mean, when you click the button, it takes one second in, instead of half a second. We're not talking a huge difference. Yeah, I feel like the Android camera has, maybe it's better now, but like with the iPhone, when you press the button, I think it's actually taking a picture from like 10 frames ago or something. Like it's going back in time and getting the picture you meant to take, not the picture that you actually took when your meat stick tapped the glass. If you're not doing it that way and then you add delay on top of that, it's a a bad experience, Alex. Chris does not like it. The other thing that uh, happened to me with with regarding phones this week was I ended up returning the OnePlus 8T that I bought. Um, so my OnePlus 7T is off to be repaired. Uh, I had a OnePlus 6 in a drawer uh, <laughs> just as my backup phone because, you know, this, this 6, OnePlus 6 I've actually got in my hand right now. I've had this phone since pretty much when it came out. So 
you know, few years at this point. It's the last one with a headphone jack. It's got fast charging through USB-C, has a fingerprint sensor, although that doesn't work anymore for some reason, and I don't know why. Uh, but it just, you know, it's just a really solid phone. And I, I compare it to the 7T that I, it is off to be repaired right now because I broke the screen. And the, the major difference is the 60 versus 90 hertz display. Mm. And it makes a huge difference in how smooth the device feels. And I, I really wish the iPhone, because I, I am tempted to go to iPhone. If the iPhone had the, uh, what do they call it, ProMotion that the iPad Pro has, like 120 hertz display, mm-hmm. um, and if it had USB-C port, I'd, I'd buy one. But I just don't want to replace all my cables. Do you ever pick up an iPhone and scroll through it, though, and think, God, this just needs to be a little bit faster? Like, I haven't had that feeling probably since the iPhone 7. Is that because you don't have a phone with a 90 or 120 hertz display? I have an iPad with ProMotion. But they're different. They're, they're very different devices. And I I really noticed going back to a 60 hertz screen a lot more than you might imagine. It, it hmm. It's like, I guess, going down a resolution. You know, when you're going from 1080 to 720, like it's... It's just noticeable in a in a way that only certain certain types of geek will care about. Yeah, I guess if you can't unsee it, that's uh, that's no good. It is a problem. And now my desktop monitor I have here is 120 hertz. So when I go back to my laptop with only 60 hertz, it's like, oh. <laughs> I I wonder if there's other dads out there who have this this conundrum I have where I've got a point and shoot from when I used to vlog, and it's a decent little Sony with good optics. It could almost fit in my pocket, you know, especially if you're going somewhere special, you know, you could probably make room for it in the old pocket. I never do, Alex. I don't think I've brought it out of my camera bag in nine months, but I have, I've taken a thousand pictures with my phone in that time. Well, you know how the saying goes, don't you? It's the best camera is the one you got with you. Yeah, it really is true. It really is true. So that's why I get all this dad guilt about the new phones when they come out. I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to get that phone. I don't want to get the big phone. I'd rather just get the small little phone because I've always wanted a small, high-performance phone. But then I feel like I'm a bad dad for getting the phone that doesn't have the best gra- uh, the best camera. So, you know, that's my that's my first world struggle recently. It's such a weird thing, and I I think I only really worry about it because I got I got a lot of other things to worry about. So I need something that's <laughs> that's not. So if you were going to not go iPhone, what would you go for? Well, the OnePlus series would always be on my list of high contenders. But I am probably more inclined to go Pixel because I feel like uh, that should be the premier experience. And um, kind of, I kind of can see where Google's going with the the whole Pixel ecosystem with the with all the devices they now have with the Pixel Buds and all. I could see it kind of coming together. Um, and so it seems like it could have the best kind of alternative answer to the iPhone because it's really not just the iPhone, right? It's it's all of the devices around it. It's AirPlay. It's it's the HomePods. It's the watch. It's the it's the headphones. It's everything, right? It's like the whole you know ecosystem, as they say. And it seems like if anybody was going to really get there, it might be Google, at least long term. But they really, so far, are not really not really doing it for me. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I'm probably just going to keep my OnePlus Seven T until it is like genuinely feeling slow and sluggish, or just actually stops working. That's what I'll have to do when they drop ports. When they stop dropping either lightning, when they drop lightning or USB-C, I'm going to have to just hang out on that phone for as long as humanly possible. How are you going to connect to your car for CarPlay and stuff if they drop the ports? I mean... Well, what am I going to do? Apple just sometimes don't live in the real world, do they? I'm not good with 15 watts of charging. No way. No way. I want all the charging. I want to take my laptop USB-C power adapter and I want to plug that sucker into my cell phone. 